1895, the state of Ohio had only two automobiles. And wouldn't you know it, they collided. <laughs> so, <laughs> who knows what kind of collision we're going to have in the days ahead. If you dare vote for a decree that God finds abominable and murderous, you will answer to him. God's curse is upon you. How dare you? How dare you? defy him. Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. When is the time for justice? The time is now. I'm tired of waiting for incremental solutions that never make any increments and never bring solutions. So when is the time for justice? It's now. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. If the court in a nation is the highest authority, then you've found a God. If the people are the highest authority, then you've found another God. If, if there's no transcendent law governing over this nation or any other nation, then you've found another God. It's never too early to learn that the government is a greedy piglet that suckles on a taxpayer's teat until they have sore, chapped nipples. Take the guns first, go through due process second. Please clap. Just as the church has an obligation to be Christian, just as the family has an obligation to be Christian, just so the school has an obligation to be Christian, and the state, and your calling, and the school, every area of life must recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. Welcome to Cross and Crown Radio, an unapologetically Christian reconstructionist talk show for your edification and for your enjoyment. Jesus Christ is King. No neutrality, no exile, no surrender. My name is Jason. I'm one of your hosts. With me in the studio here in downtown Warrenton on a beautiful day. It was so sunny out today. It was glorious. Lovely. Jordan. What up? And John. Howdy, howdy. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. How are Terrific. you? I'm well. Yeah, the weather was so nice. Finally. Yeah, it's, it's been a little bit back and forth. <laughs> yeah, it's not sure if winter's done yet, but it's kind of one of those things. I'm used to that Michigan winter where it's just winter for eight months, but it's good to finally have some sun. It seems like we're in the, the regular 60s now. I, I'm thinking positive. We're post-mill up in here. Yeah. Yeah, it's time to break out the sandals, the t-shirts. You guys like the shirt I'm wearing? Reed Rush Dooney. Reed Rush Dooney. Just for oh, all our yeah, listeners. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, the Reed Rush Dooney shirt. You can find it. I think it's on Amazon, actually. A friend of ours made it. Anyhow, thanks for, for listening. We are so appreciative of you tuning in with us. We have a lot of great stuff we want to talk about today. Um, first, though, we uh, last week launched our gear store. So you can go to the crosscrownchurch.com website. You can check out the store there. Lots of cool paraphernalia. I'm going to buy a t-shirt. You're going to get a shirt? Yeah. They're uh, really nice. They're cool. Some, I'm going to buy a onesie for my baby. For your baby? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Your baby's getting kind of big. For my uh, youngest son. Yeah. He's uh, one and a half. He might be out of it now. I don't know. Yeah, he's a big dude. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting pretty big. 
Yeah, all my kids are a lot older, so we don't have any onesies for you adults, any of you that wanted them. Or Snuggies, sorry. Yeah, sorry, you're out of luck. But we are running a special on the store in celebration of the launch. You can go to the website, type in the code CC store launch, you can get 10% off. Boom. So, and it was a great time to release the gear store after we canceled the exile. Yeah. Just the timing of that couldn't have been better. <laughs> yeah, we talk about no exile and we mean it. And we had a lot of great, interesting feedback from last week. I'm, I'm really glad that our listeners are enjoying the content, especially the exile theology. That was a fun episode to talk about. Way too much to talk about in one episode, but it's certainly... We will be returning to that topic, I'm yeah. sure. All of these. That's why we picked them, right? No neutrality, no exile, no surrender. And we mean all of that. So, yeah. Well, hey, in light of an episode, well, it was two weeks ago, right? We talked about planting Christian civilization. Yes. We really tried to focus in on the mission of Cross and Crown Church and what we're doing here in Northern Virginia. We get a lot of inquiries and stuff like that. Had a great um, couple of emails come through just asking questions. Okay, that sounds good. We appreciate that in theory. Philosophically, what you're saying, it sounds really good. But how do I even do that? What do we What do we do with you know, building a social order. We're not used to that. Usually church plants are, hey, we get together, we sing some songs, and we listen to a lecture, and that's all we see is and small Sunday. Gr- and small groups. Yeah, you can sign up for small groups in the back. Just don't, uh, you know, forget to do that. Otherwise, you'll, you know, one of our greeters will be back there to help, you You know, you remember to sign up. And that's sort of this cattle, you know, rushing everybody through the cattle shoots and getting you to sign up when you're not really participating in a social order. You're just right. you're just existing in in the paradigm of a of a local church, and and really it's fitting to talk about that because for a while now you guys we've wanted to talk about ecclesiology. We've had a lot of discussions just amongst ourselves as we build Cross and Crown Church. What is it supposed to look like? You know, do we want to adopt the Roman Catholic model with the Pope at the top? I don't. Do you think do you, so? Do you want no. me to wear the hat? <laughs> You'd rather me not wear Ooh, Episcopalianism. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll wear the hat if you want. But, um, yeah, I don't think I will. Anyhow, when, when we planted this love thing... Love you, Anglican friends. Yeah, we, we do. We do. You're wrong, but we, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> Planting this social order requires us to think diligently, think strategically, think about distinctions we want to make. How do we want to structure this thing? Should we structure this thing? And all of it really is tied to the issue of ecclesiology, and that's, that's the, the main topic we're going to discuss here with you all today. Really, ecclesiology, we'll just start with a simple definition. Yeah, what is that? It's really simple. We have ex, uh, ecclesia and logos together. We have basically the, a word about the church or um, the study of the church, if you want to call that. Not a new thing, right? It's not been, you know, five minutes and nobody's talked about it. We're always talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the reformers talked a lot about it as they were seeking to reform the church to get away from the structure of papism, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it's been a discussion for a long, long time. Ecclesiology is is important. Why would you guys say it's important? Why, why do we even need to think about it? It's, a, it's a definitely a big topic. It's not just, you know, sometimes we think it's just about who, who's an authority or who runs what, or but it's actually far wider than that. Uh, you want to talk about uh, church polity, that would be sort of the discussion around specifically governance in the church. But when you're talking about ecclesiology, you're getting into things in terms of, first of all, what is the church? Second, what is the purpose of the church? Um, you know, and then you can also get into what are the different functions within the church, and how does that, how is everything supposed to work? 
Yeah. So it's a, it's a quite a broad topic that we're going to attempt to tackle in about an hour plus here today. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and we'll we'll kind of sprinkle in some book recommendations, I think, along the way. And I'll just throw one out here first by a good friend, Stephen Perks. Um, he has a book called The Nature, Government, and Function of the Church that we really like. Mm-hmm. I like the title because it lays out actually what he says in the book. He has a section on the nature of the church. What is the church? How do we... How do we, how should we think about it in terms of its ontology? What is it? And then the government of it, how does it function in God's covenantal world? And then of course the function, what is it supposed to do? So we would recommend that book heartily, you know, maybe some nuances here and there that we would want to tease out. It is somewhat technical, a little bit. You have, you know, it makes a lot of really good distinctions and it's a very careful book. I think it's a very needed book. Yeah. And don't let that, you may be listening and think, oh, I don't know. I don't do those heavy books that do a whole lot of Greek parsing of verbs and nouns. And it's not that technical. No, it's not super, super scholarly where I, I think it's accessible. You know, you have some long footnotes and, but, but anyway, it's, it's really good book. So we'd recommend that. But yeah, ecclesiology, the study of the church, the doctrine of the church. What is the church then? Because ultimately for us, we, we need to distinguish the church and the kingdom. Right. We need to have a definition of both because a lot of times they're conflated. Uh, a lot of people confuse the kingdom with the church. Is, is the Sunday morning gathering you know, the biggest and best expression of the kingdom that we can expect this side of heaven? Or is there more going on with that? So what would you guys say? Why is that important? Yeah. I think you said it well uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, you said this on Facebook. You said, the question regarding, regarding ecclesiology is not how can we equip people to serve the needs and demands of the church, but rather how can we equip the church to serve the needs and demands of the kingdom? I think that's a very helpful distinction. You say, get this right, and we might just see revival and reformation sweep across this land. So this is why we're talking about this today. It's not because we just like to sort of tinker with the finer parts of of the ecclesiastical discussion here. This is a very important discussion if the success of the Great Commission, if we're going to be faithful to that. And so when we're talking about ecclesiology, we're talking about it's not everything. It's not the whole of the kingdom, but it's a very important function within the kingdom. It's one part in the kingdom. So obviously in the kingdom, you have not just the church, you also Christ is ruler over everything. And so in all institutions, whether that be the civil magistrate, the ruler is uh, obligated to obey him in the civil realm, and then the family. Families are obligated as a separate institution to uh, operate the family in a way that's honoring to God as well. And so the uh, every institution, whether it's the arts, business, law, courts, hospitals, you name it, it's all in the kingdom of God. And the church is to be that leavening agent that goes out to the kingdom of God and, and has uh, the the nation's disciple to Christ. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the local church and well, the church, the institution of the church is not the, ex, the exact same thing as the kingdom. It's part of the kingdom. So it serves you, the kingdom. Yeah. You're essentially talking about sphere sovereignty. So we affirm that there are covenantal institutions that God has ordained. They're clearly lined out in scripture. You have what you said, the, the civil magistrate, the state, if you will, in obedience to Christ, sort of the Psalm 2 stuff. Um, and then you have the family, then you have the church. So these are lawful institutions, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're not unlawful. They are lawful in the sense that they are ordained by God. They are predestined to exist. It's built in his covenantal world. So 
we would want to say then the kingdom is a broader understanding. The, the kingdom is Christ on his throne, ruling and reigning, Daniel 7, you know, 13 and 14. Um, he's, the, he's the ruler. His rule has a social order. His rule has everything to do with everything in life. And from that, all of these things then are, are teased out in scripture. And it's not like you go to, you know, um, second hesitations, chapter three, <laughs> and you can find, you know, well, this is the state and da, 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 da. It's, it's a systematic. We have to do the hard work of exegesis. We have to piece these things together. And then we have to go and say, well, look, you know, the apostle Paul says this in Romans 13 about, you know, the civil magistrate, but then you look back and you look in Exodus and the midwives rebelled. What does that look like? And then you have to harmonize those things and bring them together. Right. So ecclesiology is an aspect of this. It's an aspect of the kingdom. The church is a, um, it's a covenantal reality. It has judicial sanctions that are attached to it, just like every other institution. And so, and all of that's because in God's covenant, there are laws, right? There's hierarchy, there's, there's stipulations and sanctions, and there is a future for it as well. Amen. So when we're talking about what what is the universal church, the first thing we come to is a distinction, um, as you alluded to, between the visible and the in, invisible church. So those are two th- two. That's a that's a first question that we want to so address. Does does the invisible church mean the the frozen chosen? <laughs> are we talking about the the people on earth right now? A lot of people disagree on that, right? They, there's differences of opinion. What do you, what do you think, John? I would say the the invisible church would be all all the elect throughout all of time. That's like God's chosen people before uh, creations of the world. This is the bride of Christ at the end of days. Those are that's going to be the church. That is going to be the bride of Christ. All those who are elect throughout all time. So there won't be someone standing there that shouldn't be. Right. It's and pure. Yes. The invisible church is pure. It is the the most truly, the most holy, the most fully church that there would be, while the visible element, uh, it, it, it's limited because it is what we kind of see by profession right? or hear from profession. Right. So we would readily acknowledge that within the covenant, you can you can apostatize from the covenant, correct? Yes. So you, as we see in, in Romans 11, you have the, basically the tree is not a salvation tree. It's a, it's a covenant tree. And you have branches on that tree that can be broken off. We know that you're not losing your salvation as a regenerate Christian, right? But from a covenantal standpoint, if you're looking at the visible church, then yes, people can be broken off of that that uh, visible church aspect. Right. right, exactly. Because they they made that profession, they made a covenant vow, and then they broke that vow. So they're covenant breakers. They're not people who were who were regenerate and then unregenerate right yeah they're covenant breakers the the courtroom decision what we call justification by faith is not reversed absolutely not. so we wouldn't say you can lose your salvation we could say jesus banishes covenant breakers right and then in the there is also the aspect of children belonging into the visible church and so uh, god does not view Christians only individually. He views Christians corporately, both in the church and in the family. And so uh, when we're talking about in the family, uh, it's always include, inclusive, inclusive of households right. inclusive, and any children in that household. First, right, exactly. First Corinthians I'm 7, actually, children are holy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm actually partial to the Westminster on this particular question of the visible church 
Uh, it, it says in uh, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and the family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possible salvation, which is sort of an almost alarming thing that you might say, no possible salvation outside of the church. But this doesn't mean, to be very, very clear, this doesn't mean that if you're not a member at the First Baptist Church down the road that you can't be saved. Right. Because this is talking, once again, this is talking about those who profess the faith, those who are elect in, in Christ. So if you're not elect, you're not part of the church. Yeah. And that's, and that's where the covenantal language comes in. Because a lot of times in these discussions, especially that, what you just said, you you will have people who make, you know, are more of the Arminian persuasion and they don't, you know, the predestination, they get a little, you know, nervous when you, they, they get the sweats when you start talking about that. Um, but we're talking about covenantal realities, right. uh, people that are established in Christ forever from, you know, Revelation speaks of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. When you're in Christ you're in Christ. There's no halfway in. You're either in or you're not. And you can be a part of the covenant and then not be in, be in Christ ultimately. That's right. That's the distinction because uh, all, all throughout Scripture, you're seeing many examples of people who are provisionally in the covenant and then they are kicked out for unbelief. And Jacob so, and Esau. Yeah, and you have whole households treated as a part of the covenant, babies, infants who are not even there uh, or who have not even made a profession of faith. And so we're not saying that... Uh, Anybody who's born into a Christian household is automatically guaranteed regeneration. That's just to confuse what the what the covenant is. Um, and what we're saying is that those uh, who are born into a Christian family uh, have a different covenantal status than pagan children who are not born into Christian families. Right. So not not to say that they're automatically regenerate, though. Of course. Right. So tied to that, though, we need to to deal with the issue of translation real quick. John and I, we've <laughs> we talked about it a little bit earlier, just sort of bantering about this issue of ecclesia. What is the ecclesia? Is church a good translation of that? We don't have to spend hours on that. <laughs> Short answer: No, <laughs> it's not. Um, church is a word that. Um, has architectural baggage mm -hmm. and it wasn't originally translated in that way at all. So Wycliffe uh, translated it more as an assembly, yeah. which is the more of the literal meaning of ecclesia. Right. Uh, but it was with the King James Bible it, when it was translated as church. And that's also, I mean, you get some other issues right there as well. But, you know, it, it's one of those things where, the words that we use matter over time. And we start thinking that way, even though scholars should be able to note, okay, what it means is assembly. And sometimes it might mean um, a particular local fellowship who is gathering together regularly, but sometimes it, it means the whole of the church throughout time. Other times it means all of the elect in this one city. You know, so there's mm -hmm. these all these different uses of assembly where church from our point of view in 2019 might mean something else. Mm -hmm. So for the non-discerning reader who might not be as familiar with the Greek, they could be reading this and they're thinking of their Presbyterian church on the corner or their Methodist church down the road. And that's not the meaning of the text. 
Yeah, and the so the Hebrew really is kahal. It means congregation. So when you get ecclesia, that translation of the Hebrew, we're talking about an assembly of people. Yeah, whatever it means, it means some sort of corporate group of individuals. Right. And the extent of that, you have to look at the context. Yep. So and I would also say that it doesn't just have to be a physical gathering on a Sunday morning. It's referred to as the assembly all throughout the Old Testament, just as the assembly, whether they were gathered for a what you know a worship service or whether they were just at their encampment. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's in a gathered it's a gathered assembly, but it doesn't necessarily mean just once a week. Yeah. So you have different usages in the New Testament. You have Ephesians five twenty three. You know, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. He's talking the head of the universal Catholic Church. And then you have maybe a place um, like Acts 5.11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Clearly in context, we're talking about people in that location at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, maybe a verse like um, Colossians 4.15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. Perfect example. So there's... Right there, and there's a handful of them you can look at. Obviously, they're all over the place. To the church in Rome, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so you you have we have we just have to have those distinctions. We have to be careful. We have to mm-hmm. make sure we're we're on the same page with describing what sort of John you said the word corporate. It's this federal covenantal unit yes. that God has established, and there are different expressions of it too. Right. So you have like the ideology of abolitionism, and then you have abolition all over the world and you have you know societies and so like there there has to be layers and we'll get into this later the issue of the one and the many that's really what plays plays into it um so when we say church we mean ecclesia we mean the congregation and and we have to use those distinctions but let's define it even more really and how why should we talk about the distinctions of of between the institutions of when we say the civil magistrate and then we have the family and then we have the church what do we mean by that? What's a definition? Because typical Reformed theology would say, and this is really a lot of it's from Calvin, you have word, sacrament, and discipline, right? Would you guys affirm that? Sure. I mean, in <laughs> it's ter- not bad points. It, what, do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I like, mean, you have different marks at the nine marks of the church. You have all these these definitions that are out there. How are we going to define the church? Yeah, what, what makes right. it? Those are the... Yeah, we're talking. We're not talking about purpose yet, but we're talking about def- definitional. Right. Yeah, those are three marks that judicially define the church. Yeah, it's at the very least that, and this is kind of a, a almost a side thing, but it could be a matter of importance. Whenever you're dealing with the Reformation, we had this radical, radical correction that was brought on by, of course, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and it's because the Roman Catholic Church had completely centered their ritualism and their their local gathering, if you will, their their church service on the Eucharist. Everything was completely, highly centralized on that particular sacrament. And of course, the sacrament itself had all sorts of problems. The Catholic Mass is filled with idolatry. But beside that, the fact that their all of their ritualism was centered on the Eucharist, it was shifted in the Reformation, and everything became much more centered on the preaching of the Word. And I would say that is a very good correction. Uh, however, there are other facets of the local assembly that uh, also needs to be emphasized. And no, you don't stop teaching the word. <laughs> you don't right. stop having 
uh, discussions about God's word and sermons and so on and so forth. Uh, but the Reformation brought in this radical shift that changed the central focus of the local gathering. While when you look at scripture and the specific references we have to the local fellowship, there isn't a clear center. Mm -hmm. Definitely has the teaching. There are elements that are all together. There are elements that are all together that includes fellowship and includes multiple people offering a word, includes worship, so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and when we make this, when we say, that you use the word judicial, so we're, we're now putting these in terms of God's law, we're putting them in terms of the covenant, we're putting um, these aspects, situating them in a way that governs the institution. So the, like in other words, those are expressions of the institution. Like the civil magistrate, we would say, is not given the responsibility to distribute the sacraments or, or preach the word. <laughs> they should right. acknowledge the word and acknowledge sacraments, but that's a different episode. So, so definitionally, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, discipline, those things, because excommunication belongs to the church. Right. right? Absolutely agree. So the, that's just sort of a basic, like that's traditional reform theology. And, and I agree, John, there's sort of this overreaction sometimes where the, you know, churches that gather on Sundays, they'll, they'll take, you know, communion once a year. Right, right. <laughs> and this isn't going to be every fellowship, so I don't want to straw man on anybody, but the, the sort of emphasis scripture gives to, to actually fellowshipping and building each other up and edifying one another um, is very, very much de-emphasized where they have a 45-minute sermon and a very highly structured uh, worship service, and then they might chit-chat five minutes later after afterwards in the lobby, but they're really talking about football or something, and then they go home and don't see each other for a week. And they say, you see you next Sunday. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a defunct system, we would argue, no so matter how great the sermon So you're was. saying get rid of sermons, right, John? No, that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. I think sermons have a very good uh, functional purpose in the local fellowship. I don't think they're always necessary 100% of the time, but I think they have a great function and purpose as far yeah. as teaching goes, especially when you're gifted with a, a, a great teacher in the fellowship. Yeah. But and to I, go back to you know what Jason was saying, like why is it important to just get down the definition? And I think it has a lot to do with what tyranny is and how does tyranny actually come to be? Because I would say the first point of tyranny is whenever somebody who has a office of authority over you or supposed for authority over you uh, uh, asks you or commands you to sin that is obviously an act of tyranny but another issue is when they act when they ask you to do something outside of their jurisdiction yeah. hmm. right. so it might be something that is not necessarily intrinsically sinful but outside their jurisdiction they don't have a right to ask this thing even if that thing isn't actually sinful so there are guardrails in God's law right, that exactly. we need to acknowledge. So if um, if an elder of my church, say you, Dr. Garwood, said, John, I want you to dress up like a chicken and go dance on the side of the road. Well, that's not a sinful thing to do, but that's not in your jurisdiction, Pastor. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Oh, you I was go gonna, jump in a lake. I was going <laughs> to go ask you to do that, actually. Yeah. Wearing a crossing crown hat with it. Right, to exactly. make it better, uh, advertisement, right? <laughs> so, what are the jurisdictional roles? Like, what are the guardrails? Yeah, yeah, and and I also want to make sure when we talk about the the covenant, the church being covenantally tied to Christ, um, we are adopted into His family. There's a lot of different metaphors that the Bible uses, 
but with this comes the basically the judicial sanctions of, of the covenant. In other words, the church is called to be collectively a light unto the nations. And part of the way we do that is through teaching, through preaching, um, instruction. And that looks like a whole bunch of different things. It could be on our Sunday gathering. It could be um, at the college campus. It could be whatever it is. That's our task. And, and that's a judicial sanction. And I think preaching is attached to that, whether that's at the abortion clinic or in the gathering in the Fellowship of the Saints. There is a judicial um, sanction being demonstrated with the ethics of God's law. Think of Ezra and you know, the reading of God's law, the preaching. And, and the same thing with the sacraments. Those are to be distributed accordingly. Um, that belongs to the church. The church owns that. The family does not own it, and neither does the, the civil magistrate. And then, of course, there's the negative sanction of excommunication. Right. So all of that works together is basically what I'm the point I'm trying and to make. When you get away from that, that's when you get into things like the family church movement where every dad is the elder and pastor of his family and the family is his church and he decides who gets excommunication, turns into sort of like a clan thing where the family actually gets too much um, jurisdiction where the church actually holds that uh, right. Right. And so I, I just like to point that out because um, I want to point out, you know, what uh, if, if you don't observe those proper distinctions, what one example of what that can kind of turn into. And, and, and a lot of times. So I have on the desk here with me is baptized patriarchalism by Gary North. Uh Oh, and uh, boy, is that a that's a firestorm there. Um, but in it, I think North makes some excellent points. I think Rush Dooney did sort of veer off a little bit into a patriarchal um, he calls it a familiarist, you know, type type theology, but he goes back to even the Levitical priests. Um, excommunication was a church thing. It, we're just going to use the word church, an ecclesia thing. Um, banishment, same thing. Whereas the magistrate, Karim? Yeah, well, maybe that's a that's another discussion another for another episode. day. <laughs> yeah, teaser, teaser. Yeah, um, but then you had also the magistrate who was in charge of. Uh, putting someone to death for these things. So there was clearly a distinction even in the Old Testament. Right. But I have to ask you guys, in light of that, Jordan, what you said, um, is it lawful, can a father excommunicate from the church his son? No. No, no not on his own. No. Not, not no. on his own. He can no. as a part of an expression of like the local body. Yes. So, if, of course, if a father is a member of... I use the word member loosely. If he if he fellowships regularly with a group of Christians and he's a part of that fellowship and and his son goes through the, the proper Matthew 18 process and is completely unrepentant, then the father can take part with the rest of the fellowship in excommunicating his son, but he cannot act alone as like a clan chieftain. Right. Yeah. But the point I'm making is simply there are limits to every single institution, family, right. civil, right. church. And your church elder can't disinherit your son. Correct. Right. Right. That's the other side of the thing because I do sort of take, and I hate to say this, sort of like a middle view between Rush Dooney and North because um, this is where I would say that that the in, in the church, you know, the elder doesn't, by the power vested in him, excommunicate individual XYZ for it's, you know, that's not... I don't think what the Bible teaches. It seems right. to be owned by, I mean, it seems very clearly to be owned by the congregation. 
um, that's an important and not point by an individual elder. That's yeah. an important point because you could even take the the baptized patriarchalism by uh, Doctor North, and you could run with maybe some of Doctor North's ideas and get to a view that we we wouldn't affirm that is a little bit too strict on the ecclesiocratic side of things. So th- there is going to be a, a balance, but we don't want to just balance things for the sake of balancing things. Mm-hmm. We don't want to just be middle of the road people because we're trying to be a middle of the road. We're trying to be faithful. And I think there have been there might have been an overreaction yeah. a bit. And I think it's just important to keep the jurisdictional boundaries where they need to be, where an elder is a part of the body of Christ and he's a more mature member of the body of Christ. And of course, this means functionally that he'd be very helpful and useful in any matters of a local fellowship that could be important, that could need the the wisdom of a more mature person. But excommunication is a function of the bride of Christ. It's not a function of just elders, and which is also why whenever you are excommunicated, you're excommunicated from the church. You're not excommunicated from First Baptist Church. Right. You're excommunicated from important. the bride of Christ. And of course, every local church has, you know, has liberty, if you will. And they have to judge things for themselves because there is false excommunications. But they should at least look at and diligently survey any excommunication. Because an excommunication that is lawful is an act that God honors. It's a sanction that God honors and God expects to be honored, Absolutely. frankly. And, and the other thing with that, um, when you were talking, uh, Jordan, a little bit about um, the church being the congregation owns that, you go to Matthew 18, and this is this is in the nine marks crowd. A lot of people will say, you know, you go to the person, and then you bring two or three witnesses, and then you go to the elders. That's what it says, right, in Matthew 18? <laughs> no, it's, you tell it to the church. Right. The ecclesia. And theologically, it's a bit alarming because if the final step of it, Matthew 18 is to go to the elders, that's a, kind of a de facto saying that there is no fellowship without elders, that the the important elements of the church are the elders, and without the elders, it ceases to be a fellowship, which is actually in the wording of some book of church order, Yeah, which is alarming. So right. we would acknowledge that being a church locally, a fellowship established by God, does not necessitate eldership it does not no i agree agreed yeah so it's just normative it's just what normally should it's, happen. it's normative it's when people are functioning the way god says to function then we acknowledge those functions which we're, we're getting a little bit ahead of, our, ahead of ourselves there but that's okay um really i think the next half of our discussion we're going to take a break here the next half of our discussion we want to get into you you use the buzzword, John. How dare you? The membership word. Dun dun dun. We gotta get. We gotta take tackle that question. Um, we want to talk a little bit about governance too. What does that look like? What are the differences when you think of congregational Episcopal Presbyterian? So we're gonna get to that real quick. Um, anyhow, we're gonna take a break though, and uh, make sure you check us out, listeners. Thank you for for joining us. You can find us on Facebook. Go to Cross and Crown Radio there, and you can like the page, follow along with with, with the happenings and so forth. Um, but we're gonna go ahead and take a break. We'll be right back. And I gotta tell you the truth. If you're in this, then you've been do. Jude and 
second Peter chapter 2 tells you all what you should do. They glory and shame, they got us their belly and trust me, the end is destruction. Blaspheme Christ's name, they do it for gain, they preaching and sowing corruption. If we don't preach the truth, then they'll never know. If they stay under walls, then they'll never grow. We got our minds made up soon as we hit the door. And we can't keep it secret, and so we let them know. They telling y'all to sow, just so y'all can read. Jeremiah 23, they trying to start a sheet. If we don't preach the truth, then they'll never know. And we can't keep it secret, and so we let them know. to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I have, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Amen. That's the word of God. A great passage to read. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to Cross and Crown Radio. My name is Jason. I'm with Jordan, John. Howdy, we howdy. are discussing ecclesiology. Um, man, we have a great discussion ahead of us. Um, but before we do that, I just want to out of remind our listeners, you can go to the crosscrownchurch.com slash store website. You can get 10% off gear. CC store launch is the code. That code ends at the end of March, actually. So you want to get yourself a coffee mug, get a mug, listen to the show, kick back, enjoy the nice weather. There you go. You can can drink your coffee with a snapback. (laughs) Great commercial, John. Thank you. Anyway, ecclesiology. Um, We left off talking about some of the judicial aspects of the church, the covenantal realities of the church. But we want to really hit first just the governance. What are the different types of government of the church that we really historically, what have people used? What do we see as more biblical? And we have so much more other stuff to cover. So, Jordan, you want to run us through that Sure. Quick. And without going into a long historical dissertation on this topic, let's just give you a quick survey of each of these. And so I'm sure by my brevity, I'm going to offend someone. But essentially, you have Episcopal, Congregational, and Presbyterian. So with Episcopal, that's where you have a central hierarchy uh, in terms of uh, having bishops being sent down and sent to the local churches. So it's not really up to the congregation. It's uh, primarily up to the uh, the bishop, the bishop who is higher up, uh, to send the lower, you know, the bishops out to the various churches, and so that's the Episcopal form of government. And uh, back during the English Civil War days, that created uh, a, quite a lot of problems because the Presbyterians wanted to appoint their own representatives as their elders and not have one um, foisted upon them. And so that leads us to talk about congregational and Presbyterian forms of church government. So with congregational, you have the the each local church as an autonomous body who where the members of the church elect the 
elders to preside over them. And that's pretty much it. There's no uh, authority that comes from anywhere outside of that local body. And then with uh, Presbyterianism, you have similar in one sense that you have the the local church appointing elders, but then those elders are then um, appointed to a presbytery where you have multiple churches all sending their elders to uh, a conjoined presbytery where they rule from the presbytery. So that would be the form of government that we hold to as most uh, what we see closest aligned with what we see in scripture, the Presbyterian view. But uh, just to be clear, you know, there's been, whether you're Anglican or whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian, there's been, you know, men of God used in incredible ways from all three forms of these. And, and one thing I really want to point out is that no matter how good your uh, form of church government is, it's only as good as the, the men who and the men who are ruling in those forms of church government. So if they're, if they're immoral, it doesn't matter how, how you know, Presbyterian you are, it's not going to go well. And we've seen all the different branches of the mainline denominations um, uh, stumble at, at various points in history. So that's something I'd like to yeah. point out. No, I think that's, that's a great point. No matter what polity or church structure you have, uh, if it's filled with incredibly righteous men and women, then you're going to do okay. <laughs> if it's right. if it's filled with very unrighteous men and, men and women, it's not going right. to do okay. That doesn't mean that the polity doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but ultimately uh, you can be ruled by a very wise king, and that's good, but we don't want kings either. Right, and even if you don't have any of these forms and you're just sort of like casual about church, then there's still the opportunity for tyranny to uh, reign even in those situations. So mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, morality and, and ethical is the key. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for the drive-by. I know that's a, I mean, we could spend hours on that alone, but I think it's helpful to give, in, in my view, the Presbyterian form seems to balance the one and the many problem. Uh, it, it balances this, well, is it only the top or is it only the bottom? Or is it maybe a, a working together in concert with, with other like-minded people? I think that's what makes it really helpful. So what about particular local fellowships then? That's, I think that's where a lot of this discussion needs to be had because we could talk all day about, well, the universal church, the doctrine of election. Okay, but let's get maybe a little bit more practical. What does it mean to have a particular institutional you know, uh, uh, the public cultus is practiced there where the word is dispensed, where, where teaching is happening amongst the fellowship, where, where the sacraments of, of baptism and in the Lord's supper are, are given out. Um, what are the, what are the nuances to that? Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's where we are. We're in the local fellowship. So how do we handle that? Well, the first thing we would say is that we aren't here for ourselves, right? right? We're not primacy. We don't think, that our local fellowship is is a, is an end in itself, or any local fellowship, any local fellowship, it's a means to an end, right? right. What do we mean by that, though? It's we serve the kingdom, right? Exactly. Every every single local church, if they are being faithful, that local church needs to be serving the building of the kingdom of God. Okay, it has a point outside of itself. It has a it is a means to an end outside of itself. Yeah. And so that's, that's you, what we just say, planting Christian civilization. Yeah, even, okay, so your local fellowship, your local church is not the end, nor are all the local fellowships together the end. Right, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> the big T-H-E, the local church, the. which is kind of like the big collective of all local churches put together. Um, 
<laughs> kind of an interesting category. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is not the point. Right. That is not the point. That doesn't mean that we're trying to disparage local churches or put them down or to say that they're not helpful or not useful or not good, but uh, they can get a big, big headed, if you will, a bit self-centered, if mm-hmm. you will. And we know how people act when they get self-centered. I feel yeah. like yeah. the local church can get very self-absorbed as well, which isn't healthy in the long term. Back to when we were talking about the definitional components of the church being the, you know, the preaching of the word, mm-hmm. the sacraments and discipline. Sometimes people get that confused for what the purpose of the church is. And that's where we get into, into trouble. You want to talk about, you know, the defining marks of the church judicially. That's one aspect. But when you start talking about, well, what's what's the church for? Well, it's for it's for preaching. It's for teaching. It's for the sacrament and, and it's for church discipline. That is an insufficient definition of what the purpose of the church is, right? Because first of all, the church has a mission. The church has the great commission given to it. And so we are to go out into the nations and teach them in all areas of life to obey Christ. We are to be a uh, church marked by true religion, which means that we are uh, taking care of after the individuals take care of themselves and they can't. And after the family and the extended family can't take care of individuals um, then the church is to take care of first and foremost those within the church, the el- the uh, the widows and orphans specifically within the church. And so the church's purpose and mission is greater than just what you would have the hallmarks of its definition be. Yeah, we would all affirm. I can't remember. I think it's in Rush Dooney's Institutes, but and I don't remember the quote exactly. But it's basically the idea that the church is not a terminal institution. It's not the last stop. Like once you become a member or do whatever you do to become a part of a local fellowship, then that's it. Like you've arrived. Don't think that, you know, there's more to this life than you just sitting in a pew passively, you know, doing all the things. It's not a terminal institution. It's functional. And when he said that, he didn't mean that he didn't deny that the church, the church does exist for all time. The church is always going to exist. It's going to be, you know, around the throne of Christ and at at the consummation, it's going to be back here on the earth. And the church is always going to be the church. But in terms of its function during this age, the church is uh, a means to an end. It is a... uh, it is part of the kingdom of God and it serves the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not serve the church. Right. right. And, and of course this gets right back into some of our distinctions as well. We're talking about, you were saying that the church exists throughout all time and surrounds the throne of God. Amen. That is the assembly of the saints. We will glorify in God. We will worship him forever, but that's not the, the local church. That's right. not like the, the particular, regular fellowshipping of the saints for a particular reason, that's not going to be eternal. Right. That's not a permanent institution. That's because that institution has an ethical judicial purpose in our time in the New Testament for the edification of the saints for the kingdom of God. And that function will be fulfilled at the culmination of the kingdom. And let me tell you, understanding that just not too long ago, getting this idea down um, I was pastoring in Michigan, and it was it was sort of revolutionary because, and I, ne- I never once thought, oh, you know, you're all sitting here listening to me, rah rah rah, but it, but it was a connection that I never really made. When I made it, it was this idea of now in my teaching, I know that this isn't the end either. This is a means to kingdom action. <laughs> so right. suddenly, that even shifts around as I'm preparing a sermon, as I'm thinking about these mm-hmm. things. Wow, like the the ministry of the word 
is meant to suit that end. Right. right. And it's a challenging thing as well. And it's a very challenging thing. I mean, we kind of ask this question sometimes in abolitionist circles in regards to like the abolition of abortion, but we can just broaden the question out to all the kingdom of God. If you replicate your preaching, if you replicate your local church a thousand times, does that build the kingdom of God? Hmm. Good question. Does that actually affect the kingdom of God or does it really do nothing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not yeah. if it's not a social order. <laughs> I, and I had that conversation with uh, a gentleman. He's a regional church planter guru guy and told him about our social order and, you know, looking at maybe someday we'll build a Christian school. I don't know. Like we're just sort of figuring this out as we go. And he just looked at me and said, I've never, ever had a church planter tell me that. That they wanted to build a Christian school. Yeah. Wow. And and it's just, I mean, on one hand, it's shocking. And the other hand, it's like, well, it's to be expected because church planting becomes Sunday morning service planting and it's not a social order and it's not going to serve the kingdom. It's just going to serve its own little kingdom right. with its own paraphernalia. Exactly. And this is why th- this idea of the kingdom of God being fully encapsulated in the local church is intrinsically a two kingdom of idea, mm-hmm. which, which is interesting whenever self-proclaimed theonomists or reconstructionists who, you know, we disagree with, but we still love postulate that the, kingdom of God is the same thing as a local church. And then they encapsulate all of Christianity, all of Christian religion into essentially the local church and what you do on a Sunday morning. Uh, of course, they, they, they might call that a straw man, but that right there is intrinsically a two kingdom of idea because it divides everything into what is going to be redeemed through time, which is going to be, in their view, the local church and what's not going to be redeemed, which is the rest of the world. That's Mm -hmm. not what we believe because we think the kingdom of God expands beyond the local church. And that is what's going to be redeemed. And this is what sort of can offend people sometimes in their pride. They've been told their whole life that the center of the kingdom is the local church. Actually the be all and end all of the kingdom is the local church. Now you're the pastor and you're the elder. The kingdom is now riding on you. And so the, the, the sermon on every on every Sunday becomes the penultimate of the Christian experience, right? And the king, the the pastor starts to sort of believe his own overinflated importance and centrality in the kingdom, where the proper approach should be: the pastor is doing wonderful kingdom work in the context of the institutional church. The elders doing wonderful kingdom work, but so is the plumber <laughs> so is the businessman and the homemaker and you know the teacher Every, you know everyone who is faithfully obeying the lord in their calling is doing you know excellent kingdom work and there's you know um there's a there's a sense where sometimes if we make the kingdom the church the pastor and the elders can have too much pressure on them they can have an overinflated sense of centrality and in some cases it can actually be a breeding ground for narcissism and mm-hmm. for pastoral uh, malfeasance because of the propensity for pride that can creep in when you're so yeah. much made the center. Right, absolutely. It's either that narcissism narcissism, or, or burnout, like pastoral mm-hmm. burnout. When yeah, or burnout. All, all, all the weight of, the, of essentially what they think of the kingdom of God is on their shoulders. There's too much pressure. And that's right. why a lot of these sermons from the megachurches are just trash. Mm. It's like, it's clearly you're set up for failure because you think that everything... Revol- revolves around that mm-hmm. like it's this show you you're the you're the main attraction right. so you gotta you gotta you gotta tickle the ears so yeah. that's i mean that's all that's all connected of course so and all yeah. of, all that aside we love the local church as john was saying earlier i love the local church and we're 
set up as a local church right here yeah. at Cross and Crown. So right. um, there's a certain correction that we want to make. Right. Yeah. Where we, where we see that the common error in modern evangelicalism and especially the reform tradition, the common error is to make the local church too central. Right. So we're addressing that. We're focusing on that. But that doesn't mean that there's not another error on the other side. Right. And John, well. you and I are recognized as members here at Cross and Crown Church. Oh, did you get your membership card <laughs> and get it laminated <laughs> put it in your pocket? It came in the form of everyone else recognizing <laughs> my membership in the universal church. So we, we would say that, that that membership is actually really important, mm-hmm. but we're not talking about going through a six-week membership course. Right. And of course, people can do their thing, and we're not going to say their membership class is horrible mm-hmm. but what what would we say about membership that i feel like is very important uh, i think you were just talking about it jordan you go ahead and go with that yeah so th- uh, here's here's a definition of local church membership that i would adhere and advance okay so basically it's this the practice of local churches recognizing the membership of a person in the church universal right the one body of christ after having reviewed the orthodoxy, the orthodoxy of the profession of faith of that said person, right? So that person comes before you, they profess the creeds of the church, the historic creeds of the church, they profess the true faith. Um, you not being aware of any, um, you know, open, unrepentant, excommunicatable sin in that person, and that person wishes to join in long-term fellowship with you and, and the, you know, the fellowship of believers at your church and in partnership in the gospel, in that local church, that local church would then recognize that person's membership. Local church membership based on recognition of universal church membership based on their profession. So do they need to take a class and sign a piece of paper and make a covenant agreement? Well, Well, that's an interesting question, the question of covenant and local church, because we've talked about this already quite a bit in this episode where the church is a covenantal body. It is a covenantal assembly, but we're talking about That's the universal church because the covenantal head of the universal church is none other than Christ, our king. We're not saying that, say, elders are covenantal heads of local churches, though. So the local church, albeit important, Mm -hmm. albeit a a very good, useful tool for the kingdom of God, which Mm -hmm. is central for our purpose, we're not saying that each one of those local churches is its own separate covenantal body. Mm-hmm. It is only part of the larger covenantal body that is the universal church. When we're talking about oaths and rights and what what oath is a man taking um, or a child who's in covenant, it's baptism. So there's no other, mm-hmm. there's no other uh, sanction, there's no other oath that, uh, or a right within the covenant that you take. So I would just say it's, it's unneeded to, right. to sign something. We're, we just simply need to acknowledge with the local body. Yeah. Someone's baptized, they like you just said, they we affirm them, right? And that's what happened. Like recently, we had two new member families move down and join us, and they came before the whole church. And we got together and and we asked them about the uh the, the tenets of the faith and whether they affirm those tenets of the faith. You know, obviously, you knew the character and history of these people, but um, they they profess the true faith before the church and they're baptized believers. And so, on that basis, we welcome them and we have no option to not welcome them unless they're to be excommunicated, right? That's there's only two options in scripture, right? So, uh, we know that to excommunicate a person in scripture was to make a statement about this person's status in the church universal. And unrepentant sinners were not denied local church membership from a particular local church. Uh, 
purging or excommunicating was from the covenant community as a whole, all Christians everywhere. So um, to disfellowship was to cease all association, including eating with such a person. Mm -hmm. And there was no concept of telling someone that he wouldn't be recognized as a member of a particular local church and that he couldn't partake in the Lord's Supper at your particular Lord, uh, you know, church while simultaneously affirming that they are indeed brothers in Christ um, and that they can go down the road to the other church who will accept them, right? This, right. this is where we come into a problem of consistency in our doctrine of excommunication. Right. It doesn't seem that there's really much effort, at least typically, within most evangelical or even Reformed congregations to extend their excommunication beyond the walls of their own local church, besides uh, denominations, right? Like the mm-hmm. PCA will recognize other PCA's excommunication, for, for example. But there's really not any effort to serve the body by warning people about these excommunicated members mm-hmm. or excommunicated non-members, I should say. And it's not because we hate these excommunicated people, but it's because we love them. Right. Like God's word says that they could even use that excommunication to bring them back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or it affirms what's true in their heart, which is that they're actually unregenerate and they mm-hmm. shouldn't be a part of the local fellowship in the first place. Mm-hmm. But it's not an act of hatred or malice or anything. We don't want to go around just trying to get them. But I think <laughs> excommunication should be a matter of public record for that reason, because it's for the body of Christ. It's not for, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a particular local body. Right. And that really gets into like, well, who really holds the keys to the kingdom? Is it just the elders? Is it just a local church or is it the body of Christ? Yeah, I don't, I mean, you have some reformed people today that will affirm that the keys belong to the elders. Um, But we've, I mean, man, this was months ago, John, you and I were talking about guys like Bovink and others who, who for affirm, no, 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 it belongs to the church. The keys belong to the church. It's not just given to the elders. Um, though we would, again, affirm elders in local fellowships. Well, but- absolutely. And this whole keys to the kingdom idea, first of all, I think the the first problem that happens is something we've already talked about is that the kingdom is equated with the local church. It's mm-hmm. the first error. But if you uh, establish that that is an error and the kingdom actually is beyond the local church, then we have to, let's dig into the text a little bit. You know, it's Matthew 16, 18 and 19. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you build on earth, I'm sorry, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. So this is a very familiar text. And this is uh, the very same text the Roman Catholic Church uses for their uh, ecclesiastical authority. This is the same text that people use to conflate the kingdom of God with the local church. And it's also very much confused by Protestants when they use Peter as symbolic of the local church, and not even just the local church. They use Peter as symbolic of elders. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to the Roman Catholics, Peter is seen, seen as symbolic of the Roman Catholic Church. But as, as for Protestants, it's symbolic of an institution. So whatever group you're coming from, Protestant or Roman Catholic, both groups place the keys firmly in the hands of just an institution. But they disagree on what that institution is. They mm-hmm. either think it's the Roman Catholic Church or they think it's eldership. So they focus on that authority given to institutions. Uh, but I, I think this is really misplacing where the keys should be going, completely misplaces it, in fact. And I think this really adds a lot of added 
burden onto elders and also takes away, I would say, the God-given rights of the body of Christ in general for excommunication. You just go look at Matthew 18, which is just two chapters after this. Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. Just two chapters after this, we have the very same language of binding and loosing. And what is not there? Mm. Elders. Yeah. I'm not saying elders should not play any role in They should be leading in that role if they're good elders. Right, exactly. I feel like they should be leading in any important matters of the church as far as they're gifted, as far as they could be helpful. But they're not, they're not a necessary element of church discipline. They're not there at all in Matthew 18. I'm not even what... I'm not even sure what local church Jesus could be even alluding to in Matthew 18, yeah. um, <laughs> considering when Matthew 18 is chronologically. Um, well, yeah. Right. But it, it is a matter of like who actually holds the keys. And I would affirm that the bride of Christ holds the keys. And of course, the Matthew 18 process is in the context of some sort of local group of Christians. And so I'm not saying a, a, a conference call of every Christian on earth has to be made mm-hmm. or a seance has to be uh, given where every person who has ever been elected has already gone <laughs> to yeah. see the Lord. I mean, <laughs> let's not be ridiculous, but it is within a context of a local body. And it is, that's super important because these are matters given to the church by God. And to take that authority and to give it only to a very select group of men is to take something God has meant for for many to distribute that power. Yeah. yeah. And I take that language to be, a lot of people say, well, the keys to the kingdom, the keys will open doors. And it's sort of this anachronistic, you know, view of that where I would, what I would much rather say is I think the language is of shackles and chains when Jesus, you know, bound the strong man and, and the uh, demons were committed to the, the chains, Jude says. So I, I see that binding, this is a judicial sanction, bottom line, and wrapped up in that is the sacraments, is excommunication, positive and negative. Yes, and I would like to add this point. So we talk about hermeneutics, and you know, one of one of them we keep saying is just keep reading. But another one is we interpret the less clear in light of the more clear. And we also look at the full counsel of scripture. We don't just cherry pick sort of one verse and use it to enact this whole intricate system where it doesn't take into account other verses. And so with this keys to the kingdom passage, there's, there's different candidates of who plausibly it could be referring to in terms of who holds the keys of the kingdom. Is it, is it the apostles? Is it the, the elders of the church? Is, it, is Peter representative of the church as a whole? Right. And so there's different candidates. Well, clearly, let's go to First Corinthians and, and Paul is addressing not the elders in the church. He's not addressing the apostles or anything like that. Peter, as an apostle, is addressing the church in Corinth. And he says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So these are instructions to the church. Mm-hmm. And then as he gets to chapter five, he starts to address the church. And he's not addressing, you know, first reformed Presbyterian church of Corinth. He's addressing the church in Corinth, all professors of the faith in Corinth. And this is where um, the verse that I read in the intro to our segment, first Corinthians five, nine, this famous, very important passage on excommunication where he's giving instructions to the church, commanding them not to associate with these immoral, unrepentant sinners in the church. He's giving them instructions on what to do. And so when we excommunicate someone, we don't excommunicate them as an elder board and we don't excommunicate them as an elder or, or a bishop um, by power vested in us specifically. We, uh, we clearly excommunicate them 
as the church, right? And so if we look at, if we try and say that the keys were given, given to Peter just as an elder, that is inconsistent with what this text here is giving us in mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 5. If you interpret it according to, you know, Peter represent, was representative of the church, then that is in complete harmony with 1 Corinthians 5. And so that is, is clear to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peter serves as a representation. And it's not just him. It is the church. Right. It's, it's Same thing with him. the Great Commission, too, by the way. Right. <laughs> not to go down that rabbit trail. But the 12 apostles and, and those who Christ was speaking to were representative of the church. And that's why, you know, just the elders just don't have the Great Commission. The church has the Great Commission, right? Well, it's it's just, I mean, they just weren't elders anyway. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's true. They just weren't the elders. Like, just like functionally speaking, right. like they do not have the same function. They mm-hmm. do not have the same. I mean, it's a very different office. And one more to tack onto that. In Revelation, it's a motif that comes up about oh. 12 and 12 <laughs> and the 24. 12 being representative of the old covenant church, basically, and the 24 being representative of the old and new covenant church, not of these specific class of uh, elites in mm-hmm. the church. All right, so 12 tribes, 12 right. apostles. So it's right. a, the point being, this is inconsistent with the broader teaching that, that the Bible has on this subject. Yeah. Well, John, you brought up elders, and, and we have just a little bit more time left. Um, what, do we, what do we need to discuss on that topic? I mean, there's a lot to cover, but especially like ecclesiastical authority. When we speak of authority, who has authority? Why is it given? Do they have more? Do they have less? Is it different? Um, we would affirm that that authority is covenantal. It's always conditional. Right. Right. We, we have to start with that. You know, we have to start with the idea of what authority is, whether we're talking about the authority of a father or an authority of uh, like a civil ruler or the authority of an ecclesiastical elder. Like what is authority? So I, I would say biblical authority, true authority comes from God ultimately because God is the transcendent. Um, but the, that uh, authority has stipulations and those stipulations are based on the law word of God. Mm-hmm. So does this person actually act faithfully according to the law word of God? Is he uh, leading by serving others, which is our example from our Lord? Mm-hmm. Or is he uh, uh, leading to be an autocrat, leading to be a tyrant? Um, or is he actually abiding by the law word of God? So these stipulations are very, very important because you don't get authority because somebody gave you a, a badge. So you don't get authority when somebody gives you, uh, you know, a parking spot out front of your church. Hmm. You get authority because you're actually abiding by the law word of God, period. So that's, I think, very, very foundational about what we believe about authority. But do elders have more authority? That's a very big question that's the question i would say uh they probably should but they 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 don't get more authority by just becoming elders yeah not by virtue of a title right so if i became an elder say tomorrow i don't get more authority because i got an eldership Mm -hmm. but what we would say is that god calls specific men to serve as servant leaders and those men by nature of their faithfulness would have more authority because they're being faithful. Right. So a woman could have quite a bit of authority and a man could have quite a bit of authority and not be an elder. But just because they have authority doesn't actually mean that they're elders, but elders should have authority because a mark of being an elder is a mature Christian man. Right. And that's how they get that authority is by being mature. There's they're functioning and meeting qualifications and the church then acknowledges that and sees it. 
and that's the set apartness of it. We talked about uh, earlier a little bit the division of labor aspect. Right. There's clearly a, what makes an elder an elder. Yeah. Why are they an elder? Primarily, God makes elders, and we, and it's and it, it usually it's because the church deems it helpful to the church to recognize this person as an elder for order's sake, for administrative purposes, for just just practical purposes. It's and this is the practice of the church. A point from from among you, elders, is you know a common practice in described in the in the new testament and so i think a lot of this is just um elders being a gift to the church now we do need to be careful that elders are do not become a class on its own of the most spiritual most mature people in the church you don't want to create a second class sort of citizenship in the church um where if you're not an elder that means you're not as mature as those other elders because in many circumstances, the most mature person in your church may not uh, may not be an elder. Mm-hmm. It might be some, and that's uh, okay, right? <laughs> that's, that's that's totally fine. fine. Right. Yeah, and it, it could be somebody who is um, a teacher. It could be somebody who is a homemaker. It could be somebody who is a business person. Um, it 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 it's not a measure solely on your maturity level. The, the elders should be mature. They have they must be mature. That's one of the qualifications. Right, it's right. one of the qualifications. But um, if we can't have this this dynamic in church where there's only one track to spiritual maturity and it's to go the elder route or for all intents and purposes because a lot of people say, well, we don't do that in our church. But in my experience, many times it gets to this point where for all intents and purposes, the mature track is the elder track because the pastor, again, has the kingdom local church melded together and he's going to take the most, quote, spiritually mature people he, he can see to the most, quote, important jobs. Right, so. right. Mm-hmm. So eldership isn't a merit badge. Yeah, I think right. that's very important to say. Eldership is not a merit badge. So you could be a woman who's very mature, and you can have a lot of mature, you can even have a lot of authority because you know God's word and because you're a faithful faithful sister in Christ, but that doesn't mean you're an elder. Same thing, like you were saying, you could be a businessman and you're called to perhaps travel a lot. So you simply can't be in that location to serve the body specifically in that specific way. That doesn't mean you're less mature. Right. Mm -hmm. And and you don't, that's the other thing with the discussion of maturity. We know in Ephesians 4, we have these, these gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the church, right? For the work of ministry, ministering to others. We're always reproducing ourselves. We're always discipling. We're always getting new converts. We're always doing this. Why? Until we attain unity of the faith. Training up children. Yeah. The knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood. So this is like normative expression is really what it is. It's a normative expression. So if you are a mature person, you're not acknowledged as an elder. Let's take the business guy. That doesn't mean then you abandon everything because you have more responsibility now. The, the more you know, the more you grow in the faith, mm-hmm. the more you've mastered patience, mm-hmm. you have work to do and responsibility to help other people. Right. That's the it, whole it's the time old uh, it's the time old like uh, Uncle Ben adage like with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. But you know with great knowledge and great maturity does come great responsibility and that's really the essence of what an eldership means. It doesn't vest in you a lot of extra authority. Mm-hmm. You don't get your eldership badge and all of a sudden you have a whole lot more authority. You should have more authority because you should be more mature, but being called an elder doesn't give you more authority. But it's a burden even mm-hmm. it's a burden of responsibility and it's a weight of responsibility on you because 
I, I'll just talk about it very, very openly. There's the whole controversy with women elders or female elders uh, in the church. And a lot of the more liberal denominations are going that way and, or have already gone that way a long time ago. Uh, and, and they almost act as if it is a, a form of discrimination or tyranny against women to say they shouldn't be elders. And I'm sitting here. Well, if you understood elders, yeah, you wouldn't think that mm-hmm. because we're not excluding women for having honor or knowledge or maturity or strength of character or even biblical authority. We're not saying they can't have any of those things. We're saying they can't be elders, mm-hmm. which is a different thing that is definitely distinct and important, but that eldership doesn't mean that they immediately get vested in more authority, if that makes any sense. So to exclude women isn't to say that women uh, can't be mature. It just means that they shouldn't have that burden of leadership. Yeah. And it's a burden. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of the, the confusion that happens sometimes, and similar to the word church that you had with what is the definition of the word church and mm-hmm. similar to the usage of the word law, another word is elder. And because in our colloquial terms, elder just means old person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could also think of an elder being an old, mature, trustworthy Christian, right? But the Bible speaks of both elders in just the old people sense and elders in the ordained sense. They are appointed to a specific function of elder, which is what we term uh, office, mm-hmm. uh, the ordination of elder um, appointed from among many potentially mature old Christian. Right, exactly. And, you know, God is wise. He has created us, and within us we have this tension, this one in the many tension. And we have these proclivities as image bearers of God and as sinful image bearers of God to sometimes to neglect things that are very important, to shrug off responsibilities. And some of us have proclivities to be very tyrannical and to be overly controlling and domineering. And sometimes we do both in different ways or we go back and forth. We all have these sinful tendencies in us to really stress control or to shrug off responsibility. And again, sometimes it goes back and forth. We have all of these proclivities, but God is wise. God is very wise. And this is why I believe eldership in the local context is very important because it delegates some of these, these responsibilities to specific people. It doesn't mean that other people can't teach. It doesn't mean other people can't pastor in, in a way. Mm-hmm. You know? It doesn't mean that they can't be hospitable. It doesn't mean they can't do all of these things elders are, uh, are called to do specifically. But it means that these, delegate, these, these responsibilities are delegated to somebody specifically. And I... Because I, I, we, we see this all the time in culture where there is a need and everybody thinks that their neighbor is going to do it. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks their neighbor is going to go fulfill that need. And we see this in the church as well, where we know that there's a need that needs to be filled, but everybody thinks somebody else is going to do it. Mm-hmm. Or somebody wants to do everything and control everything. Yeah, that's the balance of the division of labor. And I think, like for me, I remember when I was ordained, the hands were laid on me and I was set apart and and... I, I actually sort of left that day feeling a huge weight, just this weight of, man, I have, I have responsibility now. That's, that's how I thought of it in terms, I didn't think, oh, man, I have all this power. I can't wait to wield this sword. You know, <laughs> it was more of like this weight of responsibility that now, like I, I have been set apart for a task and, and I'm going to be able to accomplish some things. Maybe Joe Schmo, who's, you know, a business owner traveling to Japan all the time, can't. But it was this responsibility 
that wasn't a responsibility for me to make sure that I had, you know, these mega church sermons and fog machines. <laughs> it was more of a responsibility of equipping and using people's gifts. And, and that's what I love what we do here. I feel like you, you both of you men are very um, well to do. You, you are, uh, you have your gifts and that encourages me because I don't, I know I can't do it all. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> Right. So that's the beauty of the fellowship, though. You're not interested in running a nursery of uh, folks who are perpetually in spiritual diapers for their whole life and right. just dependent on you. Exactly. <laughs> I don't want to get too yeah, yeah addicted <laughs> to the, the, the to the milk. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then that's another another quick point we should really make clear is that elders don't exist to feed everybody constantly. They're not nursery mates. And we think that Christians as a whole, we all have an individual responsibility before God, an individual responsibility. Each and every last one of us is going to stand before God. And we're not going to say, uh, Dr. Garwood told me. Mm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. We're all going to stand before God individually and have to, to answer for our life and how yeah. we've helped build the kingdom of God. And this goes f- as far as for teaching too. Yes, of course, elders should be able to teach and they should teach, but we should be also building each other up right. and having conversations about God's word and reading God's word ourselves, and not having to be spoon fed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an elder, you should be thrilled if you no longer have to keep like a close watchful eye over someone and you can basically, well, this person is a mature Christian. Um, this person I could trust, you know, not to say that you're not elder anymore, but the, the fact is you should be pleased when you don't have to treat that person as if they're in perpetual diapers all the mm-hmm. time. And, and if you have a situation where the majority of men in your congregation are, they don't know how to teach, they don't know how to lead their families, they don't know how to do things on their own without you know asking you what they should do next, and they can't take initiative, and, and that just continues and continues decade after decade, then you know wh- how good a job are you doing at being an elder? You know, I think that question has to be asked. Yeah, I agree. Well, well, hey, we're running out of time. We, we have a lot more things we want to talk about maybe in a future episode. Um, but just a reminder to you listeners, you can go to our Facebook page, check out our content there, Crossed and Crown Radio. There on Facebook, each Monday we bring you a brand new episode with some fresh content. Um, you can share those episodes, send them to your friends, family, whomever. Um, but make sure also in your prayers and your giving, you can consider supporting the work of Cross and Crown. You can visit us at crosscrownchurch.com slash give. Gentlemen, that's it for us. See you next week. Sounds good. We'll see you next time.